we sold everything decluttered no just like you start the process and then you just get really into it you actually mm. and then all my stuff getting rid of it and then everything in the house gone then the house then the cars all gone packed everything into three suitcases that's all we had and then we said we travel so we bought one-way tickets to new zealand which is the opposite side of the world as far as we could go we landed in new zealand and then my name is Paul Harvey and this is Life, Passion and Business. We're about helping you explore, finding your passion for life and the work that you do. But it's so much more than that. It's about finding clues to the big life questions. What does it mean to be successful? What is the meaning of life? If you're looking for more, then join me on this journey, where together we will discover through interviews, tools and tips, how to live life full of meaning, passion and purpose. Sometimes it takes a wake-up call to see life for what it is. Fragile. We all assume it will go on forever and the story will play out well. In reality, we cannot make those assumptions. All we can do is live our best life by taking control of the story. My guest Graham Brown was always a troublemaker. As a child, he pushed the limits of authority and he did not fit in. He ended up in a tough authoritarian school. Living on the curved edge is the mark of an entrepreneur, he tells me. Despite those issues, he went to university in the early 90s and graduated with an AI degree. This was 1995, well before artificial intelligence was a thing. The technology was not ready, and as for work, no one understood what he was talking about. Looking for a new edge, he went to Japan to teach English in a language school. It was a big culture shift. Japan, like everywhere else before the internet, was the land of big brands. Communication was all by letters and telephones. He discovered he liked putting himself out there, connecting with people, making an effort and learning Japanese. 1998 saw the growth of the internet and the dot-com boom was in full swing. Excited by the prospect, Graham returned to the UK to start a business building websites. And it worked, until it didn't. He went into mobile communications, realising there was an opportunity in text messaging. I've seen the future, he says. It was text messaging between teenagers. He started a mobile research company and Graham and his partners were the only company in the world offering this research. And while it was slow to start, the project went ballistic. He was on CNN, quoted international newspapers, and his business had outstanding success. He was famous and successful in the telecoms industry, and the only way was up. Then at 59, his dad was diagnosed with cancer and died within four years. And that event changed everything. See, his dad's plan had been to retire and travel, but life had other thoughts. And that is the point. We just don't know what the future holds. I mean, my wife has Parkinson's, and that was never on the plan. The loss of his father made Graham ask lots of questions, and everything started to unravel. What is life for? Does big wealth make us happy? And that was when he and his wife made the decision to sell everything and travel. And that is what they did over four years. They travelled the world. And apparently, tropical islands are not the paradise we've been led to believe. 
And how do you take deliveries on a street with no name? Graham is a gentle soul and has learned so much on his travels. And above all, it was about the importance of finding your story. Today, Graham has produced over 1,500 podcasts, written four books, and he speaks live on stages throughout the world and on podcasts, and he helps major brands define and tell their story. Let's join the conversation with Graham Brown. Hello, I'm delighted to be with Graham Brown today. He's an author, an entrepreneur, a storyteller, and I also know he has a lot to do with podcasts. He's produced over 1,500 podcasts, so I'm not going to be intimidated at all about that. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the program. Thanks, Paul. Great to be here. So... What's the story? Where did you? Because obviously you're not you're not in the UK. You're not in the no. you're not in the US. There's a lot, a lot of people. You are somewhere else in the world. Do you want to tell my listeners where you Singapore. are? Singapore. Yeah, the little red dot. Singapore, out in the China Sea. So yeah, been living here three years. Was previously in Japan before that, but I am originally from England. Yes. So how did it start for you? How did this is life, passion, and business? And we're mm. all about how it all unfolded for us. How did it unfold for you? How far do we go back? Well, I, unfolding. I'm, I'm, I'm quite intrigued in terms of um, when there's a childhood kind of like dream or wish mm. that somehow gets replicated, you know, it's sort of like, those are always quite interesting stories. And they're not always there, but it's really fascinating to try and, you know, look back and go, oh, look, I, I enjoyed that bit and I'm still doing it. I would like to say that it all, worked out according to plan (laughs) like i had it'd be easy to say like i wanted to fly planes ever since i was a boy and therefore i became a pilot and da 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 but it didn't work like that i was a trouble well i was a troublemaker i think that i was always kind of getting pushing the limits at school getting into trouble and i was sent to a rather authoritarian school which just kind of honed that sense in me and then Obviously, it could have gone either way in life, but I think that, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, they are troublemakers. They don't fit in normally. They're slightly on the curve edge. So I was one of those. And therefore, I found my home ultimately in entrepreneurship. And I think entrepreneurship and storytelling are very closely aligned. That Richard Branson said that entrepreneurs are ultimately storytellers. You know, many entrepreneurs have talked about storytelling as their magical skill if you like Steve and Jobs i guess it's one. about that thing about vision because it's about you know an entrepreneur has to work from a vision and you have to, be able to tell yourself hmm. a story if nothing else so yeah i can really see that well you imagine if you're an entrepreneur a lot of what you do whether you're raising funds starting a business and convincing people selling to clients or getting people to join your company a lot of what you're doing is connecting the unknown to the known if you go and work for a big company, it doesn't matter. There's no unknown there. You know what you're doing. But if you were to, let's say, sell a product to somebody, a new product as an entrepreneur, you're having to get them to buy into that vision, which is an unknown. Like, Why would I give you this money when I can give it to these guys who I know? Mm. An entrepreneur has to connect the unfamiliar with the familiar. And that's what storytelling does. Storytelling takes the unfamiliar and connects it to a, an experience we've had or experienced elsewhere through somebody else. Mm. That's why, you know, great leaders are storytellers. They can take us somewhere mm. into the unknown, literally yeah. promised land yeah. by connecting that to something everybody's experienced. And that's why if you look at stories, they're all full, you know, 
politics is full of it, business is full of it, all these analogies and references to the past. Look at a great example now, herd immunity. That's a story. You know, it connects the unknown, which is this behavior. We've got to do this thing to what we know. We know what a herd is. Mm. You know, a herd of cows or a herd of cattle and how they behave. That's a story. So it goes to show that storytelling can be elaborate and it can be very simple. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So what, what did that look like for you? So obviously, you know, we're, we're, we're back to you, the person, really. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean you know, you, obviously you, you say you went through education and you came to the side of it. Did you come up, come out with a plan out of education? Not really, but in hindsight, I did. This is the joining the dots part. I mean, none of it makes sense, really, does it? I graduated with an AI degree in 1995. An AI degree? That, that's yeah. quite unique in that time, isn't it? It is. It's too unique that... If I graduated with a computer science degree in 95, I would have got a good job. But yeah, yeah, an AI degree is like, that was unheard of. Unheard of. Like, what's that stuff? You know? Yeah, even the careers advisor was, <laughs> said it was unheard of. So you're like you're reading their mind. That's what they said. What is it? They had no idea. Now it would been very different. Now it would be Google or Facebook. Yeah, when did the Terminator come out? When did that come out? Because that was AI. <laughs> when did what? Sorry? When did the Terminator come out? That was AI. Term- that was, that was a little bit before, but I don't think people called it AI, though. They didn't really know. No, they just knew it as robots, right? Yeah, yeah. So that, that was just fantasy, wasn't it, yeah, for yeah. these guys? Yeah, yeah. But for, for, for me, in 95, when I graduated, they, they didn't know anything. So they sent me to Japan to teach English. That's my start. But luckily, actually, that worked out because really my fascination was the psychology of communication. Mm. Which, you know, if you've got to understand intelligence, artificial intelligence, you have to understand how people communicate. And a big part of AI is NLP, natural language processing. How do we, mm. for example, if you speak to me, how do I understand it? So on the very basic level, translation, but more complicated, actually having a conversation in AI, machine generated, right? So those two worlds merged. I went to English, I went to Japan to teach English. Um, I got into the communications industry, telecoms in the early 2000s, started a business, grew a business, sold a business, exited, traveled the world for four years, then got back into podcasts because I was passionate about communication. So it never left me. No, clearly, clearly. I mean, I mean, did you study NLP at that point? There was NLP, but very, very basic. All, all the AI, they didn't even call it machine learning back then was very it was the obviously the computers you've got to imagine this was 95 when i graduated so i started in 92 you know you could imagine running on a windows 95 box that was state of the art then so nlp was very basic we a lot of it was philosophical Mm. you know talking about consciousness which i think was really important because we don't talk enough about that now you know what is intelligence what makes us intelligent a lot of it was influenced by biology evolution mm-hmm. you know i studied genetic algorithms which was studying how intelligence is evolved over generations but the com you know the, these were supposed to take millions and millions of iterations but our computers you would set them up at lunchtime run one generation come back three hours later and it was still in the middle of computing like today they do it in fractions of seconds but back then it was you know, it was the world of black and white, really was. Yes, yes, yes. I, well, I vaguely remember it all because I was kind of sort of into computers at that time. And 
Yeah, they were very crude machines at that time, that's for sure. <laughs> well, 95 was, you remember those AOL CDs you used to get through the yeah, past, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Netscape Navigator, that was the world we were in then. Yeah, yeah, people used to collect them, use them, for, use them in their garden, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> Using the garden to keep, to keep the birds away. That's know. right. We were very basic back then. Mm, absolutely. So living in Japan must have been an interesting journey for you, because that's, that's quite a culture, isn't it? Quite a culture shift. Yeah, I think culture shifts are good, you know. Well, yeah. I think they challenge us. And some people don't, I mean, I can imagine why a lot of people don't like them. You're out of your comfort zone. But one thing you do learn is that the realities you take to be reality are no more than stories constructed by people. For example, I'll give you the most basic example of this, a map. When I went to Japan, when I landed in Tokyo in 95, 96, I landed in Tokyo and I got taken to the headquarters and in the headquarters, there was a map of the world because this was a language school teaching English and our maps of the world that we saw as a kid, you would know that on the left side is the Americas in the middle is Europe and Africa. And on the right hand side is Asia. And it's all kind of organized around the Atlantic, isn't it? The Atlantic's in the middle. So this axis between London and New York, yeah. but I went into this office and I looked at this map and it was, so hang on a second, there's something wrong with this map. But it was organized around Asia, wasn't it? Yeah. Japan was in the middle. Yeah. And it's such a simple shift. But point when you see something like that, yeah, it's their point everything changes. I've been seeing this thing for my whole life. And it gets even more interesting when you see a north up, south up map. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these. Like no, there's actually a map. There is a map. It's called the south up map. And the south is on the top part of the map and the north is on the bottom. So it's effectively upside down. And you show that to somebody and the first thing they say, it's upside down. And you say, no, it's not. There's no up and there's no down in space. No. no. So that's as valid as the other one. And you say, why? Well, then people say, well, it's because they, because of the, the pointer on the compass points north. It doesn't. A compass points north and south. If you ask any, yeah. physics student the yeah. point is somebody actually painted the north point red once yeah and we all accepted that so it's all been stories told throughout history that we accept this worldview and i think that's one thing i learned when i went to japan is actually it's not necessarily so that everything you knew when you grew up was really a, a construct that people have made and it's like the where we feel comfortable, isn't it? It's that it's not that same old test where you, you say to someone who holds your arms and automatically you know, one hand goes on the other. So now 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 turn it around and it yeah. actually feels really uncomfortable and difficult to actually put the other arm on top. It just, it just doesn't right. feel right at all. Because you're so used to it. Yeah. You cross your legs. It feels wrong. Yeah, that feels crossing wrong. your legs. There's another one. Yeah, your legs in one direction or another direction. It's when it just feels completely wrong. So yeah, it's fascinating when you start looking at this. I mean, Tokyo and you know Japan must have been quite. I mean, obviously you, you were part of a language school, so I guess you had some resources and some support around you. But yeah, even, it must be quite lonely. Ninety five. Yeah, it was. It was a bit of a crazy time, Paul. Like Japan back then was Japan Inc. It was still Sony and TDK and it, Toshiba. These big names. It was still a bit crazy. This is before the internet. So we didn't really experience things like we do now. Like you can look on Instagram and see everything and experience mm. it and read a blog. But back then it was kind of like the old world where you got on a boat and then you never came back. So you went there. 
People used to write letters. I remember writing letters and receiving letters from friends. So the experience was very much you were there and you, you were full on into it. And you either sank or you swam. And one of the, the fastest ways to swim is to learn the language because you can get into a bubble. You can become the expat. I didn't want to be an expat. I didn't want to hang around just with other expats who mm. moan. I mm. wanted to learn. I wanted to jump straight in and I did my best, right? It's quite a hard language. But I did my best, made friends and got stuck in. I think that's the only way you can really experience it. And part of that is being vulnerable and putting yourself out there and being stupid, you know, not fearing messing up and sounding like a five-year-old people laughing at you <laughs> because you sound like the classic one in Japanese is there's men's Japanese and women's Japanese. I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't know. I learned it all from a book you see. Right. And they don't, and it's just all neutral. You go there and all my coworkers were women. Yeah. I, I absorbed all their Japanese. So when I spoke to men and men going out for a beer, very Japanese together, they would laugh at me because they say I sound like a woman. <laughs> because all the verb conjugations and the expressions very feminine and there was this like big gaijin foreigner guy speaking like a woman it was like quite freaky for them they found it quite amusing but if you if you can get on with that and see the funny side of it well absolutely can... absolutely it, it, it makes you stand out that's for sure <laughs> yeah <laughs> but some bit you know that can put you right off you yeah. can imagine like going in, just walking into a shop and ordering something, or ordering food in a restaurant. You can, you can see why people go abroad and eat McDonald's because it's familiar. And then they don't have that sort of ground open up and swallowed by a whole situation because they got it wrong. They I have got to the admit, I did that. I, w I was in mainland China in 2002, hmm. 2002 and um and we were seriously mainland china we were taken we were, we were taken to this city no and um you're visiting around but we were left on our own for a couple of days and there were some days where no one spoke any english at all in this mainland city and finding food anything that looked recognizable <laughs> and seeing a mcdonald's it was like seeing a hey like, like like seeing a you know like the, the uh, <laughs> well that was more survival though, right? that was like <laughs> There's uh, times when you just got to say, like, screw the the cultural part. I've just got to eat. I got to eat know? some food. Oh wow, food! Yeah. yeah, it was really weird. Food, and then I do cultural part later. But yeah, right now I just got to survive. So yeah, I can really understand that one. So you, you were there. You, what happened? You you did you do well in the language school? Did you stay in it for long? Yeah, I did. Uh, so I did two years there, and then um, I I wanted to get back. I wanted to get back to UK because I wanted to start my business. All right and this was 98 now and things were picking up people were talking about the internet i got very excited about the internet obviously mm -hmm. i was a computer guy so i head back to the uk in 98 and my goal was to start a business but i didn't have any idea what i was going to do all i knew was i was going to do computers mm -hmm. but what do you do like if you don't know where to start so that was the goal and i had this sort of knowledge of japan which i couldn't really use so i'd have to try many things first business i started was designing websites selling websites to people in 98 because i could do my own mm. i could then sell that to businesses and it literally was pick up the phone book yellow pages right start at the top aardvark plumbers 
you know, hello, do you want a website? And it was that business selling websites out of the phone book and just banging out hundreds of calls a day. It was thankless. You couldn't do that now. You wouldn't be allowed to. It's illegal. (laughs) There's a lot of things you could do in those days. (laughs) People would actually answer the phone for starters. Well, that would be a, yeah, that's another problem. Yeah, they didn't answer. Yeah, they answered the phone then, didn't they? There were phones and people, real people at the end of them, rather yeah. than machines. Yes. And people would like, yeah, okay, coming down to my office. You know that you could actually get a meeting with somebody. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that was my first sort of entry into business. It was, you know, I think like if you don't know how to start or how to create a game-changing business, just start something. Did it work? Well, I did for a bit. I started with a good friend and that was the biggest mistake ever. So, but a good learn lesson. Didn't stay good, so friend. I started that, Didn't stay good friends for long then? No. <laughs> uh, we felt like he, but yeah, we have different sides of that story. So <laughs> Yeah, there's, ne- there's never, a, there's, the truth lies in the middle somewhere. Like all it's grey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It involves money. Yeah. That's all you need to know. Yeah. yeah. So I always advise anybody listening, don't start a business with a friend unless you've already done something like that with them before with money. Yeah. So, and then um, from that, the business after that, we so that was a failure, Hmm. lost money. The second business now was, okay, there was people, whilst we were designing websites, we got involved in web, so mobile application design. So wireless application protocol, as it was called at the time, we started developing those websites, met a lot of people in the industry, got talking to people, um, got a few openings, didn't really go anywhere. But then I had this idea that the, the information I had from Japan, as I'd seen the future of mobile applications, I'd seen teenagers, Japanese high school girls using phones, texting, (coughs) sharing content. So I thought, actually, what if I go and talk to these telecoms companies, knock on their doors and say, I know about this market. I can sell you some information. I can sell you research on it. And they all told me in 98, 99, we don't do kids. Not interested, not interested in texting, not interested in anything like that. They were all interested in middle-aged mobile users. And I said, hang on a second. I've seen the future. They all refused. So that business was about eight months in. It was Christmas. I remember very much Christmas Carol type story it's christmas we're all about to give up that business me and a partner who started it with no sales for six months losing money and i got a phone call christmas they said we love your report we've seen it we want to buy it we're not a mobile company but how do we get it and i said great who are you and they say we're mtv and they became our best client for 12 years not surprised they and saved they, our business. They yeah. recognized that they would, yeah, absolutely. They would bite your hand off. Back then, yeah. Yeah, they would. Yeah, they were something back then in 98. And then we, we created this business, this mobile research business, and the thing just took off. Mm. We didn't have a plan for it. We suddenly started getting all these recor- these calls from agencies, <clears throat> telecoms, mobile handset manufacturers, all requesting data on young people on mobile phones. We were the only company in the world doing this and you can imagine how many handset manufacturers how many mobile network operators in the world they're all buying from us and we had a, a very sharp rise selling this report how did that feel it was it was just we it was crazy there was a time i was on cnn with richard quest <laughs> you know the 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 british 
interview on there with the husky voice i sat with him and he, i did a session and he was talking about young people on mobile phones it was all a bit surreal mm. and every time you know i was in the sun newspaper so for your british listeners they'll know just how funny that is and it, it you know i'd be in the financial times quoted in there very very formal but in the sun it would be like mobile youth boss graham brown always call me a boss said kids are the future of mobile phones so it's all a bit surreal i was in these newspapers talking about these things because there was a lot of scare there was a lot of yeah. curiosity and there was a heck of a lot of money in it yeah so it's a very interesting time to yeah. be in it i it's it's the surrealness of it wasn't it because i i had a friend who was involved in the rave scene back in the 80s uh -huh. and um she was a musician that's what she did but she got involved in organizing this rave scene and they did this rave one night and all she was she, she, for her it was about the mute and everything else at the end of the evening there was so much cash that the police were helping them pack it into bin bags <laughs> just so much they didn't know what to do with the cash there was just so much of it <laughs> <laughs> the stuff that myths are made of yeah, was yeah, that the one like, in the the yeah. the hanger i had no yeah, idea quite. what it was it's like just people were packing it into bin bags like what are we going to do with this money <laughs> i'm going to take it away wow that's cool yeah obviously as you say with there. money they didn't manage to keep it always you can probably imagine <laughs> yeah yeah no it's exactly when you don't have a plan it can go a bit crazy yeah so but so um, yeah so moving on from what well, what happened i mean then like you're a rising star in this now you know? yeah did, did, well, you, did, did that go to your head? Did you feel like you couldn't lose? Not that we couldn't lose, but we made a lot of bad decisions. I think when you, you're making good money, yeah. the, you, it, you know, it covers all sins mm. in the business. And when you're bootstrapping it alternatively, when you're struggling, you really have to go lean, focus purely on the right value proposition. But when we were making a lot of excess money, doing a lot of bad things, a lot of good things, but you know, nice office, then a bigger office, and then an even bigger office, then a lot of staff, and then setting up two offices in India. So we had an office in the UK, we had office in Kerala in India, an office at one point in Chennai, then we had an office in Calcutta. So in total, I think at the height we had about 40 people, and then closed the offices down in India, we still had the offices in Fulham, which are not cheap, as you can imagine. And so there was a lot of things going on, which if I was to look back at it, I would say I wouldn't do any of that. Yeah. But there's this thing called success. And often it's defined by other people, or you think that that's success, but it's other people's expectations of you. So when of you... Of course, hindsight, most people's hindsight is fantastic. Yeah, it's too late though. That's the problem. <laughs> it's too late. It's done now. That's that's life, isn't it? You learn. But that's yeah, what's I mean, for, isn't it? That's what the journey's for. So you can learn something out of it, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And you realize, I don't know how it is for you, Paul, but I've realized so much of the poor decisions I've made are because of ego. I'm not saying that in a sort of very, you know, I meditate or I don't meditate. I've tried and it doesn't work for me but I just need a bit more patience. But the thing is the ego part, I recognize for sure mm -hmm. that, you know, creating this image and all, all the stuff, all the trappings of success, you, you can imagine the material and the titles and stuff like that. And just how much BS that is. 
So let's talk about success. That's one of our questions, isn't mm. it, really? It's, it's, it's this idea that, I mean, clearly in the beginning, there has to be a, a development of acquisition, an acquisition of resources. We, are, we all have to go through that process of establishing ourselves in the world, creating resources to support ourselves in some way. So there's, that is obviously an early success model. And you had outstanding success in this, in this project. So what did it, where did it lead to this success for you? And how, how did your model, what, what was the trigger point to change the model for you? Um, trigger points. Interesting. I think that you've got to have some kind of dissatisfaction with it. You've got to realize that this ain't working, mm. that we were, we had a very successful business on the face of it. We were growing we had a big head count. A lot of people were talking about us. We were in the news constantly. People knew who we were. So there was in our industry, there was a sense of fame that you go to an event and, oh, you'll be that guy. So it's very easy to think of yourself as successful. And then I guess a number of things happened. I think probably the trigger point was when my dad died. And so he was 59 when he was diagnosed with cancer. Mm. And uh, he died when he was 63. But I think it really affected me because, well, he was the first close person that I lost. And, but it really affected me because he had worked all his life for one company and he was due to retire at 60 and he had to retire through um, sickness in 59 mm. and when he was 59. And the, the really sad part of it is that he just worked all his life to, to enjoy the retirement with my mom and it didn't come. Because, you know, for those last four years, it was just, you know, he was terminally ill, effectively, like it was ups and downs and so on. But that really impacted me hard and made me ask questions about not just success, but why am I doing any of this, right? Because what, what if I spent 20 years building a business and I'm just kind of throwing a dice? That hopefully I'm alive. That's the first part. Hopefully I'm healthy. Hopefully I have my mental faculties, which is obviously a key challenge as well these days as we live longer and then my partner as well hopefully that she has all of that by the time that we both get to that age which double the chances of it not getting that far mm -hmm. right and so i asked these really sort of deep existential questions about everything and then you talk about the unfolding that was it everything started unraveling i started questioning everything like why am i doing this what makes me really happy and do I need 25 people in the office? Why, why are they there? And then what, what, so for example, if we got rid of the office, like a lot of people are asking now, do we need 25 people? Well, maybe we can get by with five. And then if we have five people, I don't need to travel half the year to go and sell this thing. And if I don't need to travel half the year, I don't need that person to do the marketing. And so this is strange unraveling that takes part when you're touched by mortality. Yes. My, I mean, this past, this podcast was triggered by the death of my father. So it's very fascinating that you had the same kind of revelation coming out of that. Mm. But what kind of questions did that raise in you? Um, well, the point about it is when, when I rec when I, I wasn't sad at my father's passing because he, he needed to leave. He was, he was an old man and it was his time and he wanted to go. He was very fed up. But I think the issue more for me was the, recognize, rec the recognition that he had endured much of his life rather than enjoyed it. 
Mm. And I think that was that was the sad part about it when I realised how much of his life he had just just endured through, and also he lived vicariously through my mother rather than his own journey. And mm. and uh, you know that part of that. Excuse me, I can hear an alarm going off in another room. Let's just close the door. <clears throat> um, yeah, you know, part he had a vic he, he vicariously lived through my mother in many respects, and he never really found his own his own journey. And I, and he became quite cynical. So these are the things I recognise so much in my in myself in my father. Mm. Then I got to the point of well, yeah, he got to eighty odd, eighty nine, and didn't know what it was all about. I'm at fifty. Well, well I was at fifty five at the time. And going, well, I don't know what it's about either. What is it about? Mm. What's it for? Why am I doing this? Because mm. I found myself in a, in a business that I sort of enjoyed, but there were more frustrations in it than than joy so that was where i was going hang on a minute there's got to be more to life than just this mm. and it's These are big questions it right? is and it's still an open question yeah there's still yeah. more to life than this and and what i what i i now do is that i make sure that every part of my day leads mm. to joy there's always i'm always happy with the process so when i when when we first met this morning you know i've been out for a run for for an hour or so this morning i've been exercising and my day yeah. is now very much around me and i've managed my life to make it around me and it, it's interesting you're saying about people looking at companies now they go well why do i need offices mm. and people why do we need to expand so much we in fact we'd have five people and we could all have a good living or we're going to have 40 people and some of them don't have a good living and we have a building to maintain. So I can really see what you're saying about that one. It is, it is going to be interesting to see how it all unfolds when people, when this madness finally settles. But we become very conscious of time, don't we? I think this is what other people's lives and death, not to get morbid, because it certainly, like you say, it, it reminds you of why we're here and joy I don't see it as morbid, there. though. I don't see it as morbid. I'm going to die. I accept. I accept that I'm going to die in these days. Mm. And we, and we now, well, some people say speaking about death is morbid to some people, but I, I find it quite liberating. I do too, because I recognise that, that it means there's an out. <laughs> <laughs> right. We've got to do the in first. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate it, but it does mean they're out. Because I mean, I, what I do realise is, could you imagine being immortal? How awful would that be? Yeah, it'd be pretty boring. I think. Like, There'll be no pressure to do anything. It's like a plastic flower, isn't it? Where's the beauty in that? Yeah. It's like there has to be has to be journey and progression and movement yeah. and something going. Otherwise, it, otherwise that, that's sort of expedited by the, the sense time is limited, right? Yeah. When you see somebody else like wasting it effectively or not doing it because no matter how much money you have, you don't get a second chance, right? And I think that's why you see people born into families of ultimate wealth mm. really struggle to make a go of it. Yeah. And, and they, they never had life. that kind of resistance. No. They? And they live a life which they find, which is hot, which is shallow and they do shallow mm. things, you know, in, in this constant search, to find meaning for themselves. Yeah. Well, yeah. Let's go to Paris for lunch, you know, and then we'll take the jet, you know, I mean, I, I, I mean, it's all right. I can appreciate they can do that, but mm. why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah does it make anybody any happier that's the point at the end of the day who knows i think it knows, it's, I mean, a subjective thing. it's a subjective thing isn't it that's that it's that whole conversation about what is happiness and mm. 
uh, this thing about internal and external happiness, you know, so taking the, the executive jet to, to Paris for lunch is probably an external happiness. Mm. And some of that might be about, look, I got seen on my Instagram feed taking the jet to lunch. Mm. Uh, maybe that's what it's about. Yeah. There's, I don't know who said it, but there's a quote which I love, which says, don't set yourself on fire to keep other people warm. I think that's how a lot of people live their lives. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? So where's the passion for you? Because I mean, we, I mean, what, what do you, where's, where is your passion these days? Well, I love a challenge. Okay. And st- my passion is storytelling. Yeah. And I love helping people tell stories. I love telling stories. I love listening to stories, creating stories, all of it. We all love stories. You know, I'm a student of storytelling. Sit with me in any movie and I'll ruin it for you because I'll say, I'll be that guy. My mum used to do this all the time. This is what's going to happen next. I go, shut up. I'm watching it. But she would always be right. And the reason she was always right is because she read so much and she studied stories. And now I've sort of inherited that, if you like, and I'm passionate about not just fictional stories, but also the stories we hear in everyday life, business, politics, culture, everything from how we help people in public health care with, for example, flattening the curve. It's another story, right? To how to sell an iPod, Steve Jobs, for example. Mm. You know, the, I'm very much passionate about the psychology of that. How does it work? How does it affect our brain? What are the triggers? Why does it go straight to the main line of meaning and, and emotion in our head and our, in the, you know, our consciousness? How does that work? So I'm very fascinated by that. That and also the era of the machine in which we're in, I'm very much passionate about that, how that's going to affect us and how that places more emphasis on storytelling Mm. because it's a very human skill. Mm. So all of that. So look, you had this amazing business and you had this, did you sell the business? Did you get get out of it? What, What happened? It's a mixture. So the plan was to sell it, but we didn't structure it well enough because we just, like from the beginning, it just kind of built this cash machine and not had any real thought in it. And then, um, so come 2012, when the business had run its course, I just, I exited the business, I sold out to my business partner. I got a reasonable deal, but you know, it wasn't anything like I'd expected or what I could have got if we structured it possible, uh, properly but it was enough for the short term. And that plus some investments that I made during the business, I took a lot of cash out and stuck it into property on the advice of a mentor. He said, look, you're not gonna make a lot of money selling the business. It's a, again, it's a throw of the dice. So stick it into assets. So I did that early on. And of course, advice. when you've got a business like that with this very cash rich and those bits and pieces, as you said, it's hard to make any money out of it. And then the other thing is if you do make any money, the tax man goes, oh, I'll have some of that. Well, so that. so, so you, you, you've, got, you've got to really, really structure and plan these things well if you want to get some money out of these stuff. And it's, as you said. Yeah, it's hard though, isn't it? When you're in it, like, <laughs> it's hard to actually. Hindsight yeah. again, back to hindsight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> When I do this come back round when I'm reincarnated, <laughs> I'll have all this knowledge on board. Yeah, you will make no. all the right decisions. No, no, no. no, no, no. See, see, I'll I, be that guy of privilege then. See, see, I, see, I've come to the conclusion this is all great big virtuality, virtual reality machine, basically. And this is what you paid for. <laughs> <laughs> 
and you didn't pay to remember anything. The idea is you don't go into you don't go into the story and knowing the answer, knowing the outcome. Uh, do you? It's like Groundhog Day then. Yes. <laughs> oh, I see. But you, so but you do don't get. Again. But you don't get to remember it. You can't. <laughs> Respawned. Okay. Well, yeah. So I, I sold out of the business, and then um, I had this conversation with my wife, which was, you know, I hadn't taken a holiday for twelve years, literally. Yeah. I think the only time off I had was when my son was born. And then uh, we decided we didn't need to work, didn't want to work, didn't have the appetite for a business. A lot of people start a business straight after selling one, didn't want to do that. So we decided we'd travel. We bought, we, so two things happened. Firstly, we sold everything. I mean, everything, you mm. know, like houses, cars, shoes, the lot. Oh, wow. Every, decluttered. What's this? This like? Does it pick it up? Does it bring me joy? Sort of thing. Maria Kondo job. Oh yeah, this is before her. <laughs> it was all of that. It was like, uh, no, just like you start the process and then you just get really into it. You actually. So there's a part of like giving, because my son was six at the time, giving away all his toys to the kids in the local area because we don't sell toys. You don't get much money for them. So giving them to the younger kids that was really nice. Mm. And then all my stuff, getting rid of it, you know, because I was. 40 something and then i had stuff you know just collected stuff wanted to get rid of that and then everything in the house gone then the house then the cars all gone packed everything into three suitcases that's all we had and then we said we travel so we bought one-way tickets to new zealand which is the opposite side of the world as far as we could go we landed in new zealand and then we liked traveling so much we felt really liberated that we traveled for four years in that lifestyle living out of suitcases so that was how many, how many children just one okay one six-year-old boy okay and we went off and traveled we stayed a bit you know we lived in uh so we stayed like we, we traveled around a lot and then we plotted in some areas like some islands we lived for a while so we lived in okinawa in the east china sea we lived on lanzarote for a year and a half a little bit in cyprus and then in between, we would like jump around on tropical islands. So that's there must have been some tough bits and all of that, though, mustn't there? I mean, oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean yeah. we're painting a very Instagram picture of your life, oh, yeah. moment, aren't we? There's this beautiful life, but there must have been some shit bits. Oh, there were lots. There, there were tons. <laughs> and, you know, you're absolutely on the nail there. Like the highs are really high because, you know, being in Fiji, tropical beaches, like nothing to do today, hang out, da 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 da, all that beautiful sunsets, Instagram. And then the lows were, don't have a routine, don't know anybody, I don't know what to eat, I don't know where to get food, internet's not working, I have to get my son in school. And then those are really low. Because you, you take, all, take for granted all that stuff, all that connectivity you build around yourself, you know, even your neighbors and the loose connections that you have normally. And that can really play on you. You're, you're quite vulnerable. I feel when you're out traveling and that, that's one of the reasons why you do it. It really is it, quite brutal. I have to admit. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is. I think, I don't think people really realize quite how tough it is. I think it's, it's I think it's easier and harder with a family. I think it's one, it's mm. both. I think it's easier because you've got instant family with you and, and some communication, but harder because you've got that responsibility of family with you and everything else. As you say, you've got, yeah. to find, you've got to find education for your son and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And you, you're always with the same people as well. It's a pressure cooker. 
Well, yeah, of course. See, they see, they see both sides, yeah. isn't it? You can't when you're on your own. You can just walk away. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and also remember that when you're in that environment, you just, you are spending a lot of time tired and hungry. These are not good conditions. Really, even traveling. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you're, you're tired. I mean, when I say hungry, you're not you know hot, hungry because of poverty. You're hungry because you've landed somewhere. You don't know where to get food. You don't have the local cash, you know, you've got to change money. You have to, the store's not open. You know, we're not talking about landing in London here. No, 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 no. We're right. talking about subtropical islands. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So that, that can play on you, right? And that can grind a little bit. But I these guess are all, also yeah. delays, like sitting in an airport for hours and then waiting for a plane, this sort of stuff. You know, you know. Yeah, and just getting used to things like not working, internet, yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, not getting like, in, so we lived in Spain, like streets there don't have names. <laughs> you know, it's like you need a delivery, but the street you live in doesn't have a name, like on this island. So how do you get it delivered? All these kind of like crazy things that you take for granted. But they're yeah. real. But you know, that just kind of chat is constantly like pulling apart everything you've ever built about yourself and your identity and who you are and mm. what all these things mean to you and really constantly questioning and refining what it is that you really are passionate about and what makes you happy. So I guess at some stage you decide to find a base, a permanent base and you settled somewhere. Yeah. I was um, living in Okinawa and uh, basically I, about 2017, I got bored of living on tropical islands, mm -hmm. which is crazy because people say it's living the dream. It's like an exit. It's the end. But to me, it's not the end. But there's not, nothing better than playing the game, right? Mm. Keep playing. If you're an entrepreneur, you, it doesn't stop. So I was on Okinawa and I thought, <clears throat> I'm going to start a podcast. So I was in Asia. I love tech. And I wanted to start a podcast to reach out to people. So I started Asia Tech Podcast. I started that in 2017. Mm -hmm. I eventually did like 500 episodes wow. on that one. Yeah, but I did, I did it essentially just to reach out to people. I was like, hey, what's going on? Like you in Shanghai, you in mm. Bali, you in Bangkok, what's going on in technology in your industry? And everybody wanted to talk. I thought, wow, this is a great way to connect with people when you can't travel and when you can't meet them face to face and across all these time zones. I thought I, this is some kind of superpower, this podcast thing. And a few months in, I realized actually this is a pretty good, business idea and people started coming to me and saying how do i do this and that's when the seed was sown planted in my head that actually this is no more a hobby this is kind of like another way back in i guess i was looking for a way back in how could i start another business i'd been four years out of business maybe more at that time and i thought this is it i'm going to give this a go and then the next step was to move from japan to singapore Mm -hmm. And that's where it became a business. <clears throat> so what is the business now? So we're a podcast agency. Mm -hmm. We help brands create podcasts. Essentially, a lot of uh, enterprise corporates here in, in Singapore and servicing them, really. Helping them tell stories, helping them tell more human stories. The human side of their business, yeah. Yeah, yeah. like humanizing their people. They're not brands, they're people. Who, who are the people in these companies? What do they care about? What's their personalities? That's what we really want to know these days, right? 
that's the point isn't it we've become we've now starting to identify the human side of it all and we want to hear that mm. that what are those human values what are the values of the business business because an entity can't have values whereas something has to have the values and run those values well we've we've learned haven't we the hard way like enron had values they had this big plaque in their headquarters about how much they care and integrity all those kind of things enron but we know that people are what we experience brands as so we care about the ceo or the the head of product or some intern or somebody we know at the business that's our experience of the brand we trust them not mm. the brand mm. so how do we give those people a voice that's what really excites me mm -hmm. that's what reminds me of what technology is for to democratize storytelling to give people a voice even like i remember going way back to the web days that's i believed in that vision that mm. the web would empower and democratize <clears throat> as much as it got corrupted i still believe in that i still believe it's about giving people a voice and true freedom is found in taking control of your story that's it you know it's not money it's not assets it's not anything skill it's your story if you can control your story then you control yourself and your life and the problem is is that the whole all these systems are pyramids you know that everything like career success everything it's a pyramid and those at the top will write the rules for those at the bottom right and i believe that one of the most important rules is the belief in a story you know why do people the craziest one of all is is why do people work six or seven months a year to buy a car right out of their after-tax income which is the average right and you ask them why did you buy that car and he says oh i have to drive to the office and i think hang on a second what's going on here you have to drive to the office to work to earn enough money to buy a car to drive to the office yes tell me that's not screwed up that's that's the that's a story because they see this imagery on tv about if you own a bmw then you own a mercedes you are a success you are worthy yes so i believe to take control of your story at the business level the individual level <clears throat> is ultimate freedom and that's what i'm really passionate about there's having a car and there's having a luxury car, right? I think there's a functional car, but buying a car as a status symbol. Ah, different that's really, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's very different. Yeah. You know, that I will, you know, I did that. Would, you know, would people like me more? Would people respect me more? Would I turn up to this event in this car and people go, oh, look at him. Isn't he successful? I mean, that was some dumb ass things that I was thinking back then. Uh, yeah, but... <clears throat> Success is all about stories, isn't it? Business is a lot about, as you say, business is about stories, perceptions, and down to that, it's all down to perception. Mm. Money's a story. You know, Money's a story. Absolutely. Once upon a time, money was supported by gold. Nowadays, it's just supported by perception. Yeah. And even that word, credit, look at that. It comes from the Latin credo, which means to believe. Oh, lovely. <laughs> the, whole system's, the whole system is built on credit, right? Yeah, the yeah, whole yeah. system is built on belief. Yeah. Look, there's rabbit holes here. I need to be careful. We, can we are. We are going down a rabbit hole, and this is supposed to be about you, not about life. <laughs> not, not about the society. <laughs> so how do you see, what do you see as your contribution to the world? 
I don't know if I have a marked contribution to the world. I'm just thinking about how I can be better as a person and help the people around me. And I feel that by giving them a voice, helping them find their voice, I think that's the best I can do. I never think of like, you know, how do I change the world? I don't think that that is necessarily a, a good use of my, my skills because I don't think worlds are changed by these grand visions. I think people change the world one person at a time if they ever do that. I can just focus on that. How can I do what I'm good at? Helping people tell stories. If that can help people then help other people, that's even better. How do you contribute to yourself? Uh, constant practice. You know, I enjoy doing these kind of, com having these conversations with people like yourself, Paul. Mm -hmm. I think that to me, you know, it's like being a stand-up comedian. Uh, you're constantly having to gig. You're constantly having to face the moment of truth. You're constantly having to be on stage. You've got your material. Like I use some things, like I said some things today that didn't work in my mind. I said some things that did work. It's just like your material as a stand-up comedian, right? Yeah, it is. It's like, how do you, you keep refining it? You know, you've got to go and do the gigs and read the reaction. And, I, you know, good, what I've really learned is this thing called the moment of truth. Right. I think it's a really powerful concept that we should all think about, right? Because it, it's the comfort zone. And a good example is like your legs, you're a runner, right? Is you're, you spend all that time in a day walking around in your legs, right? For years and years and years, walking, standing, sitting, using your legs. But your legs, like given the amount of use, your leg muscles aren't gigantic, right? The question is why? It's because we've always used them within their comfort zone. It's only when you go and like you push massive weights or run up hills do you actually build leg muscle because it's outside of its comfort zone, its failure point, right? And it's the same with us. You could spend your whole life tweeting, retweeting, posting status updates, writing blog posts on social media, and you would never build your personal brand or improve your story because it's like your legs, they're always within that functional comfort zone. It's only when you get on stage and face failure the moment of truth do you actually improve as a person now it applies to anything not just storytelling language learning or whatever you you know whatever it is you want to do in life only when you face failure do you improve take a risk absolutely that's where yeah. the miracles happen absolutely so what's the one question you'd like people to ask you in what context just generally well, it's the it's the platform question, isn't it? It's that it's it's that thing about. I mean, we could have this question another way, but it's it's the opportunity well, for you to say, "What is the one thing you'd like people to ask you?" Or yeah. it could be, "What's the one thing you'd like people to ask of themselves?" Hmm. It it's this thing about how do you how do you get into the right conversations, really? Hmm. I like people asking me the question I traditionally hated the most, which is what do you do? Oh, labels. Labels are weird things, aren't they? I've... I love and I hate that question. But it's really, really, isn't it? Like, like, what do you do for a living? What do you, it's like, as soon as you meet someone, that's the first what, question they ask. What me. are you? Yeah, what are you? <laughs> what box do I put you in? I have to know. <laughs> well, that's the storytelling part because I don't have time or I need to very quickly determine who you are. I need to determine then, if you're a threat. Yeah. 
So if I can put like, you into a, you if mean, I can put you into a box, a nice safe box, then I yeah. can then I don't have to worry about you. Yeah. Because when someone so, says to you, "I'm a tax inspector," how does it make you feel? Uh, <laughs> I'm not adding you on LinkedIn. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, um, um, I'm a hired, I'm a contract killer, but it's my day off. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be more. In- that would actually be more interesting for the tax inspector. I'd like to have a conversation with that guy. But it, it, there you go. You're already making assumptions about these people. We are right. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's such a horrible question to answer in a in a normal way. It's like I'm the VP of marketing. I, but, no, but what do you do? What do you mean? What do I do? Um, I mean, but what do you do? The VP of marketing is your title, but what do you do? Mm. That That's the interesting part. So I always used to struggle with this because I could never come up with an answer. And now I just tell people storyteller. And they're like, okay, what's that? People are intrigued. What is a storyteller? Mm-hmm. They say, either they think I'm some kind of bard who's like floating on a cloud, which is quite a good image, actually. I'd like to be that. Or, you know, it's, it, it's something to do with stories and business. People are interested in that. I don't think people are not interested in stories because from you know the moment they were in the crib, we've been listening to them, right? So I think oh. you've got I think this for everybody listening, I'd say when people ask you that question, play with it. Don't tell them what they're expecting because you want a conversation. That's what it should be, right? It's like art. You know, you're not actually interested in the picture, you're interested in the story behind the picture, right? I think also you like we we kind of want to get to the point quickly with the people we're talking to is that if they're not if they just go oh that's nice it's like i'll see you later but if people are asking you questions like wow tell me more you want to tell them your big bold audacious goals what you're passionate about straight off the bat and not edit yourself or hold yourself back mm-hmm. like you could have said oh, i'm in social media but that's boring it is or i could say oh yeah i'm a communications expert that's boring but that's very normal. You want to get to the point and then people say, oh, I love that. Well, they walk off. Everybody likes communicating with other people because we are by default human species, social by design. Mm. Gosh, this is a fascinating conversation that could roll on for a while. And I'm yeah. really <laughs> careful here. So if people want to connect with you, what, you, what, you, what, you, what are you looking for? Are you looking to talk to people? Do you want people to come and ask you to help them in some way? How, how will people connect with you if they did? I don't have a specific call to action. I'll give you my website. And if anything interests you about what I talked about, I'm happy to chat to anybody. You can email me or you can contact me through the website. Check out my podcast as well, my books. It's up to you if it resonates. So it's all the W's, grahamdbrown.com. Mm-hmm. And it's with a D because without the D, it's the wallpaper website. <laughs> so it's grahamdbrown.com. So what books have you written? What are your, what's your subject on the books? Uh, so recently I wrote the human communication playbook, mm-hmm. which was, that was an ebook. I didn't put that one on Amazon. I've done all my other ones on Amazon in print and a physical book as well. So the ebook was about how we need to communicate as humans in the era of the machine, you know, how humanity needs to find its strengths and not compete with machines, but double down mm-hmm. on what humans are really good at, which is storytelling and what machines cannot do well they can do everything else pretty well mm-hmm. but not that part so that's what that book was about yes. and the other books i've written about communication so i've written about um how to build a brand worth talking about 
creating communications for brands and also communications industry. So about my mobile youth time, I wrote a book called Mobile Youth. Are you on social media at all? I'm on LinkedIn. That's mm-hmm. the best one for me. I am on the other ones, but I tend not to be too busy on those. I, I try and keep social media down to just one, which is LinkedIn. I've got Instagram and that, but I'm not sort of, for all the reasons I talked about before about stories. He has an Instagram life, but doesn't tell anyone about it, which is fantastic. Well, it's, it's you know what it's like? It's like, I, I think that you can spend a lot of time on Instagram and I don't think it makes you happy. No, I probably agree with that actually on some level, but there we are. I don't want to encourage it, given what I've just said. <laughs> <laughs> well, all those links will be available at the website lifepassionandbusiness.com. So do check out Graham's stuff because he's a, he's a fascinating guy. <laughs> so Graham, I get to this question for everybody. And I think we've touched on it a little bit in our conversation. What's the meaning of life for you? Well, I guess really it's to be happy. I know that's what you you sort of say when you're five years old and you end up saying when you're 95, it's like what happens in the middle? It's going to get lost, don't we? So really what makes us happy? Happiness is not not defined by a state. It's not defined by getting something or being something or achieving something. As most people and certainly myself believed it was, and certainly not defined by other people. It's designed by doing. And this was the strange discovery I found for living on tropical islands, is that if cycling a bike makes you happy, design a life where you can do more of that. If running makes you happy, design a life where you can do more of that. If that means moving to a different part of the country where you can run more, then that's going to make you happier, not an extra zero on your bank account. That's the irony of it. Because that makes no, once you're beyond survival amount in the, the bank and salary, it doesn't make much difference. What really makes a difference is how you use your time. And is, is it making use of that time to do what makes you happy? That's the meaning of life, finding that. That's your passion. It could be something simple like running. It could be talking to people. Like my passion is talking to people, even as an introvert but it truly is. And so how do I create a business and a life that allows me to do that? And then that becomes your passion. It's not about how do I do this business so I can grow it and sell it? No, it's about how do I keep doing this so I can keep playing this game? Yeah. And that's the goal. Find out how you can keep playing the game because if I was to retire, what would I do? Play golf, go and travel? <laughs> Why would you want to retire? Questions are good questions. Like, why would you choose to retire? Why? If you, I, I can't understand you're going to retire if you're doing a heavy, heavy job. Like, yeah. If you want to escape. If you're doing something physical, I can understand you don't need to stop. But, but if you can create the life where you don't need to retire, why? Why would you bother? But you don't need to retire. You don't need to take a vacation from it. it no. Truly, you talk about energizing, right? Yeah. There are activities that energize us. Running, like you said off air, gives you joy. Yeah. It does. So that that's the meaning of life. It's so simple. I, I mean, this is my personal experience, but that's what I fear. Well, we you have can to, find that. We all have to find the experience for ourselves. But I think what you've just said is very valid, and 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 I'm so delighted that you found your path. Mm. Thank you. So Graham Brown, thank you so much for being with me today. It's been such a joy to talk to you, and um, I didn't feel intimidated at all, which is wonderful. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> I was I was 
That was a gentle guest. No, I really appreciate it. You're a good host. I enjoyed this a lot. Thank you. Thanks, Graham. And that was Life, Passion and Business with Paul Harvey and my guest, Graham Brown. If you would like to connect with Graham, he's not big into social media, but you can find him on LinkedIn. And you can find him at his website, which is grahamdbrown.com. And he is a specialist in brand and story, but he just likes to connect with people. So if you want to catch up with Graham, do check out those links. And you can find all those links at the website lifepassionandbusiness.com. And while you are there, do check out our resources because there are loads of things on there that can help you make sense of this journey that we call life. I can definitely recommend the three steps to daily success, a simple five-minute process that sets your day right. Well worth a try. As I say all the time, if you've enjoyed this podcast, if you enjoy any podcast from your content creators, please support us with likes, shares and reviews because it's those sort of things that help the ecosystem grow and most importantly, they help people like yourself find good podcasts. So support us where you can. Much appreciated. And as always, thank you so much for your time and attention. I'll catch you next time. All the best.